In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We will better understand the parable of the Great Supper if we understand the setting in which it was told. Jesus was eating a Sabbath day meal in the home of a ruler of the Pharisees, a religious leader. The Sabbath meal was viewed as a kind of Great Supper itself, as an anticipation of the meal that would take place in the coming kingdom. Jesus was not a quiet and unobtrusive guest at this Sabbath day meal. He angered his host's crowd by healing a man. Healing on the Sabbath being a bone of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then Jesus criticized the guests for their unseemly scramble for the most prestigious seats. He counseled them to choose the lowest seat, lest they be displaced by the host in favor of a more prestigious guest. If you choose the lowest seat, the only way to go is up. Then Jesus recommended a new strategy for hosting a dinner party. Rather than inviting your friends, as this Pharisee had done, who will repay the favor, Jesus counseled throwing a dinner party for the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Then Jesus said, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In response to this saying, a man in the crowd exclaimed, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. A statement that illustrates that the best way to avoid the harsh implications of Jesus' words is to praise their content or praise their sound while ignoring the actual content of what Jesus had to say. It's at this point in the meal that Jesus told the parable of the Great Supper. Understood in its context, we can see the irony of the parable. God sent his son to announce the advent of the kingdom to proclaim the commencement of the great feast of Isaiah 25, where God said, The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees. Yet the leaders of Israel were completely ignoring the invitation. Instead, they were carrying on with business as usual, enjoying a meal that purported to manifest the kingdom of God while ignoring the very presence of the kingdom of God in their midst and, in fact, giving it a lower seat at their own table. If we do not see and interpret the parable in its context, we are liable to misunderstand what it is saying. At face value, we might misunderstand the parable to be saying something like this. God has announced a great supper. This great supper takes place in his church. Those of us in the church are already participating in the great supper, while those outside the church are ignoring God's invitation and continuing on with business as usual. Thus, 
from our comfortable position in the church, we can rail against the unbelieving world, telling the world that God is really going to let them have it when he comes to judge. This, roughly speaking, was the perspective of the New Testament Pharisee. Understood in its context, we see that the parable is aimed at religious people. Its primary point is that it is possible to be fastidious in our devotion to the doctrines and practices of the faith, but miss the most essential thing. It is for this reason that for the, two, the first two Sundays in the Trinity season, our tradition appoints epistles from St. John to complement parables of warning in the Gospels. Epistles from St. John that focus on the essential point of love. As St. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who hates his brother abides in death. The sign that we are in the kingdom is not our mere presence in church at the meal that represents the kingdom, but the practice of love for each other in Christ that bears witness to our presence in the kingdom. As Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The great religious temptation is to substitute religious activities for the demands of love. As the Pharisee in another parable prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But Jesus died for those other men. We are called to fast and tithe and pray to spread the kingdom so that those other people might see and believe. Love desires the good of the other, not the condemnation of the other. The practice of religion cannot become a substitute for love. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, it is right to fast and tithe and pray, but the true test of these religious duties is love. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. <clears throat> the temptation to substitute outward religious action for the motive and practice of love became a temptation even in the early church, which we tend to uh, assign you know, sort of lofty motives to always. This is seen in the warning given by the risen Christ in Revelation to the church in Ephesus, which is, or was, interestingly, St. John's home church. In Revelation 2, Jesus instructs 
John to write this message to the church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, and have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. The principal way we guard against the religious error is to take very seriously the connection between God and those who bear the image of God, between love for God and love for neighbor. Biblical morality is entirely rooted in this connection between God and the image of God and people, between Christ and the image of Christ in the least of his brethren, of whom Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. This is what led St. John to say in last week's epistle, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That is, how can we say we love God if the very image of God is right before us and we do not love the image? Jesus' main criticism of religion centered on the way people use their religion as an excuse not to love. Thus, the Sabbath became a reason not to heal, not to give rest to a sick person. Thus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite did not help the wounded man because helping him would make them religiously unclean and unable to perform their duties in the temple. The parable is a warning against the separation of our religion from our life. The idea that if we perform some religious duty towards Jesus in church, this excuses us from responding to Jesus when we see him in our homes, at our work, or in our leisure. To respond to the invitation to the Great Supper means to respond to Jesus everywhere we see him. Now, there's a reason we're tempted to use religion as a substitute for the demands of love. Loving other people, real people, in all the spaces of life is hard work. Those we are called to love have messy lives, and they don't always respond the way we want them to. Love requires a caring commitment of what is often viewed as non-productive time, a chief sin in the market economy. Love requires us to invest our hearts and to have them broken and yet to continue to love. However, everything that love requires of us, love first gives to us. For we come to the altar with messy lives and we don't always respond the way God wants. God invest, invests much non-productive time in us 
And sometimes we wound the heart of God and grieve the spirit of God. Yet, we come back to the altar each week, and Jesus is still here to give himself to us in love. The test of our experience of love, of our acceptance to the invitation to the feast of love, is whether we become lovers who love others the same way God loves us. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.